Welcome to JTV, the Global Jewish Channel. I'm actually here in New York this week, and I'm joined by one of the most, for me personally, inspiring and insightful rabbis I've ever come across. His name is Rabbi David Foreman. He's created a website called Aleph Beta. He's also written several books which try to find beautiful and deep insights into the written Torah, the Hebrew Bible. So I spoke to him about a range of topics that interested me and that I hope will interest you as well. I hope you enjoy it. Hey Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure it's, to be here. It's an absolute honor to have you on JTV. You focus on Aleph Beta. We're here in your Aleph Beta offices. You focus on the written Torah, on analyzing, plummeting the depths um, of the themes that can be found within the Hebrew Bible. Um, a lot of the religious Jewish world spend most of their time actually delving into the oral Torah, which is basically the rabbinical commentaries um, that we believe has been passed down all the way from Mount Sinai, the commentary, the understanding of the written Torah. But you focus very much on the, the, the plain uh, text. Um, why have you focused so much of your efforts trying to educate people and study the written Torah? And um, do you think in general we need to focus more on the written Torah? You know, in a way, it's an interesting sociological question. The question at some level is how we got to where we got, uh, where if you look at the Orthodox world, almost all of our focus is on studying Talmud and very little is on studying the Bible. Uh, where did we get there and why did we get there? Uh, it's a question that puzzled me. Uh, I grew up in Berkeley, California, um, and went to a small one-room schoolhouse. Uh, Jewish, went to a small Jewish school in a one-room schoolhouse, kind of. And uh, wow. how many kids were there? Uh, we had thirteen students in uh, a combined sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I'm proud to say I was the valedictorian of our class of three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but be that as it may, gosh. Um, uh, one of the delights of growing up in Berkeley is I had the opportunity to uh, hear the sermons and the drashot of Rabbi Yosef Leibowitz, who was the rabbi at our small Orthodox shul there. And he really opened up my mind to the possibilities of, of worlds of meaning hidden in the written Torah, which weren't really being talked about. And one of the puzzling things I found is that as I became exposed to sort of East Coast American Orthodoxy as opposed to West Coast Northern California Orthodoxy. It came as quite a shock to me in my teenage years to find that uh, other kids had a very different experience. They had never been exposed to anything like that. And on the contrary, they almost knew nothing about the written Torah. It was, it was routinely ignored. And the only thing that was done was studying Talmud. And I remember vividly thinking as a young high school student of ninth grade, how could it be that we believe that God gave us this book only to ignore it? I mean, if God wrote this book, it's certainly he, he meant to convey something. By doing so, God wasn't wasting his time, so to speak. But they would argue so, we're looking at these texts. They, they are featured throughout the Talmud, just isolated within specific verses. Correct, but that's an isolated view. So I'm, I'm looking at a verse here and a verse there. Mm. And you can make the argument that I'm, I'm looking at a verse here and a verse there. But what if I would say that... You know, when you read the New York Times and, and, and you read a sentence in this article and you read a sentence in the other article and you say, yeah, I saw the morning's paper. You haven't seen the morning's paper. You have no sense of the, of the overall context. You're not reading it as a document. And, and sort of like basic 
reading comprehension is, is at least something that we should expect of ourselves, um, and yet why aren't we willing to engage the written Torah at that level? Um, and I think the, the answer for me, I suspect, although sociologists can come up with their own answer, uh, is that we haven't, as a society, really developed the tools to get real depth and meaning out of the text at the, at the basic biblical level. And for whatever reason, somehow, uh, we've managed to do that in the oral law. If you, if you go to any American yeshiva, Israeli yeshiva, anything like that, uh, you will find that there is basically a rigorous set of understandings of what it means to learn Talmud. Talmud is difficult to learn, make no question about it. It's an Aramaic, it's its own legal code, but a legal code we can understand how to parse. There's rules for how you do it. There's an understanding of what makes someone a skilled student of the Talmud. Yes, there's this way to do it, there's that way to do it, but there's certain fundamentals. I remember a rabbi of mine, a mentor of mine, telling me in high school about learning Talmud that, uh, that it's like playing baseball. Right? It's just mastering the fundamentals. And after you master the fundamentals, everybody agrees on certain fundamentals. They're unspoken, but everyone knows what they are. And after you master those fundamentals, then you can spread your wings and you can be creative in certain kinds of ways. And I think that that is a paradigm for learning Talmud, which we are comfortable with and which basically works. Um, and I don't think we have a similar paradigm when it comes to learning the Bible. And in the lack of uh, and, and when we don't have such a paradigm, it makes us deeply uncomfortable because I think as a society, we feel we don't know what in blazes we're talking about. And no one wants to be in a situation like that. Um, if you, uh, there's a great book that I'd recommend. Uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn wrote this book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he analyzes sort of trends in scientific revolutions and, and what is the reason why a scientist will will move from one paradigm to another. Uh, what was the process through which uh, Einstein's revolution relatively took place? What was the process through which the Copernican revolution took place? Are there common denominators in the way the Copernican revolution took place to the way Einstein's revolution took place? And one of the arguments that Kuhn makes is that there's, there's sort of, um, uh, there's, there's a couple different ways to think about science. One way to think about it is that a mature scientific field is a scientific field in which a paradigm has been established. And what that means is, is that everybody knows the rules. Everybody knows how you're supposed to do science. Everybody knows what a, what a proper experiment looks like, what a proper hypothesis looks like. Everyone knows what a peer-reviewed paper looks like, and that's a mature field. And uh, where you have an immature field is where no one knows what the rules are. Where you have a scientific revolu revolution in progress is where the rules are changing, right? And that's where things get, get funny. And somehow, in the Jewish sphere, when it comes to Talmud, we have a, a mature field. And somehow, when it comes to biblical analysis, we don't. And what this leads to is, you know, if you um, walk into any Orthodox uh, simcha, as it were, um, and you you see people celebrating a wedding or a shavuot, so someone will get up and will and will talk for ten minutes about the parsha, and most of the time, it's nonsense. There's a word for this. It's called Shalashudas Torah. It's the Torah <laughs> that you say over during Shalashudas when, and, and there's sort of this... Lacks this, intellectual depth. It, it, not only is it lack of intellectual depth, there's, there's simply no 
rules for evaluating. The, 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 to the extent that there are rules, right. there's a social construct that goes something like this. I stand up and say whatever I want, no matter how ludicrous it is. Mm. You sit and you politely listen to what I'm saying, at the end of which you come up and say, Yasha Koch, that was wonderful. Mm. And I say, thank you very much, and we both sit down. Mm. But we both know in our heart of hearts that what I've said was nonsense, and you're not convinced by it, and I'm not convinced with it. But I, I just exercise some mental gymnastics to come up with something which is utterly implausible. And that's what passes for the study of Bible. What I'm trying to do in Aleph Beta and my work is to try to lay down ultimately a paradigm which other people can can work with, mm. some rules, some th that there is a way to go about this. There's a methodology to go about it. And uh, if we can um, jump into that methodology, we can argue about the fine points, but it provides us a way to actually learn this thing. Right, so let's talk a little bit about those rules. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work through Aleph Beta online and also on uh, your, your books that you've written on some different biblical themes. Um, I'm trying to understand what, what uh, sort of impressed me and made me so curious is how, how have you found these things within the text? So there's a few questions to ask here. The first one is, um, you know, what is the way in which what is your methodology for reading the text? What are the precursors, if there are, for this style? What's new about it? And then the second question is, well, why haven't we found some of these amazing insights? Already? Why haven't they already been sort of noted or written by our ancient commentators? And I guess a third question as well to pack into this is, how can we know whether we've read something into the text that wasn't actually there or whether we've actually revealed um, an authentic meaning? Okay, so to, to really answer those questions would take a while, but let's take uh, one at a <laughs> Sorry time. Sorry to throw them it's, all at you. It's okay. Um, what are some of the rules, right? That was your sort of your first question. Yeah. Uh, and your second question was, um, how is it that we've come up with seeing things before that sort of haven't been seen? Right. Um, So to some extent, I want to argue that the methodology which I'm expressing is not really a new methodology, but an actually an ancient methodology. And to some extent, it's the most ancient methodology that we have. If you go back to the earliest, um, to the earliest kinds of commentary on the Torah, before what's known as the Akronim, the medieval scholars, before the Rishonim, what might comfortably be called the Dark Ages or the Late Dark Ages, right before all of that, Right in in antiquity, uh, you had the midrash, right? And the midrash is you know five six hundred you know uh, A.D. or B.C.E. or whatever you call it, um, where really the rabbis of the Talmud are grappling with the text. Now we were talking before about uh, the, the Talmud, and the Talmud is fund when most people think of the Talmud, they're thinking most fundamentally of what's known as halachic drash, which is expounding the biblical text in a halachic way, in a legal way. But there's also a kind of agadic drash, which is expanding the biblical text to understand its ideas, to understand its mm. narratives better. And midrash, again, is something which typically gets ignored. And the reason why it gets ignored is because, it's again, midrash is difficult to understand. Mm. My argument at its core, and you can see this by watching, you know, Aleph Beta videos, is that, is that midrashic analysis is really kind of using 
um, the, the, the themes and ideas and the rules which I'm articulating. In a deep kind of way, I don't think I'm articulating anything new. I think I'm revealing the structure of Midrash. And um, you can see it when you come across a strange Midrash and it doesn't seem to make any sense to you. And uh, you then look back at the biblical text and if you begin to sort of apply a rigorous methodology in looking at the text, all of a sudden it clicks and it's like, that's what the Midrash is talking about. Mm. Uh, and it, it's, it's fascinating because you can sort of go both ways. Sometimes you can start with this puzzling Midrash and not understand what it's talking about, look at the biblical text carefully and then it clicks. Sometimes you do the analysis and you look at the biblical text and you find these subcurrents and these themes underneath the surface and then and you wonder how come I'm the first person who ever saw this and then you stumble across this Midrash and it's like I'm not the first person who ever saw mm. this, right? There, there were others who saw this uh, earlier. Um, and Midrashic analysis goes back, you know, to very, very early times. I'll give you an example of this to kind of take it out of the air and, and, um, and again, give you a little bit of sense of the methodology and a little bit of sense of what I'm talking about with, with uh, anticipating Medrash. Um, my argument is that the Medrash itself, to some extent, is playing off of biblical analysis because one of the key points of, of the methodology which I'm articulating is that the really earliest commentaries on the Bible is not actually the rabbis of the Medrash. The real earliest commentaries on the Bible is actually the Bible itself. That, and that seems counterintuitive. How can the Bible be commenting on itself? But the, I guess one of the most fundamental aspects of the methodology that I'm arguing for is the assumption that the Bible is commenting on itself. Basically, my argument is, is that the Bible is the original internet, as it were. If you think about what the internet is, its power comes from the interconnectedness of its information. You might not want to say that in some religious circles. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The internet gets a bad name, right? But I'm not saying it's the internet in terms of the content of the internet, but the power of the internet right. is the ability to interconnect and interweave information. It's interesting that I'm old enough to remember Al Gore when Al Gore, back in the 90s when he was running for president, before the internet was really fully developed, talked about it as an information superhighway. Mm. And we've since discarded that kind of term because it's too linear. It's not an information superhighway in terms of this thing that goes straight, but it's an internet, it's a net, it's a, it's, it's a web, it's a worldwide web. Mm. And the ways we speak of the internet emphasize the interconnectedness of the information. What would, internet, what would interconnected information look like without electronics, right? What would hyperlinks look like without electronics, where you can't just sort of mouse over your cursor over this little blue thing and get somewhere else? What would it look like in a black and white text written with a quill on ink? What it would look like is intertextuality, which is one of the main so, you know, fundamentals that we work with in, in Aleph Beta, which is that every once in a while you're reading a text and you come across this, this strange word, language, phrase that reminds you of some other strange word, phrase that appears elsewhere. And you have to be careful with this because a, a, a non-practiced practitioner of this can spin all sorts of nonsense out of it. But um, it's not simply that the word uh, said uh, or he said appears here and it appears there, right? right. It's, it's an unusual turn of phrase. Like in, uh, in Shira Shiram, for example, there's this phrase at one of the climactic moments of the Song of Songs, which is a, 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 this, it's an allegorical story of love between a man and a woman, where the woman sort of unintentionally, or perhaps intentionally, causes distress to her, to her male lover. And uh, in so doing, he's knocking on the door. And she says, ah, 
why do I have to get out of bed? I already took off my coat, I'm undressed, I'm in bed, I, I don't want to dirty my feet and get up to open the door. And she insults him, but the language for that is pashatati et kutanti echacha al-bashana. Now, if you listen to that language, it's rich with, um, with intertextual allusions to other points in Tanakh, two in particular. First of all, pashatati et kutanti, I've stripped myself off of my coat. Well, there's only one other time in Tanakh that you have the language of someone stripping a coat off of themselves. Right. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. What's the story of Joseph and his brothers doing in the middle of Shira Shirim? It doesn't, right, in the Song of Songs, but it's there. And it's remarkable. And once you see that, you begin to see that there's other aspects of Shira Shirim right over there that's also referencing, of all things, the Joseph and his brothers story. For example, the next thing the woman says is, I've washed my feet. How can I possibly, um, how can I possibly uh, dirty them by, by going up to open the mm. door? And if you think about Joseph, what do we know about the pit that he was thrown into? It says something about the pit. Haborek, the pit was empty. Einbomayim, it didn't have any water in it. Well, if you go feet first into an empty pit, what happens to your feet? Your feet get dusty. So right after there's this reference to getting your, your coat stripped off of you and thrown in a pit, there's this reference to these dusty feet of Joseph as if I don't have his dusty feet. And, and these things pile up one after another after another. And at a certain point, after there's 10 or 11 or 12 references to the Joseph story mm -hmm. surreptitiously hidden in the text, you have to ask yourself, is this a coincidence? Is this just my imagination? Or is the author of the Bible intending to overlay that text? And when I talk about the Bible being its own commentary, what it's really saying is that, is that the Torah is saying, if you want to understand text A, you can't really understand text A without reference to text B. Mm. Look at text B, overlay it in text A, mm. take the Joseph story, almost like with a physical transparency, just plop it down mm. on the Song of Songs and see one story sort of um, enlighten another. To get to the point of... But can I just pause you yeah. for a second? But So when you see... I mean, I guess it's probably it's going to link to the next question which I asked. If you see... It's one thing to say, okay, I, I see a link between this part of uh, the Bible and that part of the Bible. But it's another thing to be able to say, right, this is what the link means. Yes. And how can you know whether that is accurate or not? Absolutely. And you don't, right? There's a, and that's a very... So you're always very, saying perhaps. Yes, yes, you're always saying perhaps. And it's, by the way, it's very similar to science, right? Mm. And so how does science work? There's two parts to science. There's evidence gathering and then there's interpretation, right? Which mm. is, I can have an experiment and I can find all of this evidence. And the question is, what does the evidence mean? What does the data mean? Mm. So I can show you data and now interpret the data. And at that point, a practice scientist has to be able to sort of make a leap and say, this is what the most conservative interpretation of the data seems like to me. Mm -hmm. But scientists can argue about that. Mm -hmm. And hence, the arguments that emerge in science, right? That is a legitimate argument to say, yes, I see that something is going on, right? But given everything else that's going on, right, and, and, and the questions that we have, I would discount that possibility and go towards this possibility. And that's a legitimate argument you have, but it's an argument waged on a certain battlefield upon an acceptance of evidence. And basically, all I'm saying to a reader is, is accept this evidence, right? And there was, don't ignore it. And I was, if you're reading the Song of Songs, be aware that that this is out there. Don't ignore it, mm -hmm. and and try to account for it somehow. And if you can account for it in a responsible way, then you have a theory as to some of the marvelous inner layers of meaning that may be going on. Mm. Um, but again, I I think one of the keys is and and is is basically intellectual honesty. 
And I think one of the things that a responsible practitioner of this methodology, or really a responsible learner of Torah has to do, is to say that, um, what am I doing when I'm learning Torah? Am I using the Torah as a hook for my own ideology, or am I seeking to discover what's in it? If I look at the Torah as a hook for my own ideology, then I say, I have certain preconceived notions about what I want the Torah to, to teach. I'm teaching uh, ninth grade. I would love it if my ninth graders had an inspiring lesson today about Lush and Hara and the evils of, of the evil tongue right. and of gossip. Right. So I'm going to look at this and I'm going to pound that, that round peg into the square hole and by, you know, and one way or the other I'm going to get this text to come up with some sort of lesson about Lush and Hara and that's one way you can do it. And where you can say, in a more subtle way, uh, my parents got divorced. I never spent any quality time with my kids, right? So now, let me look in, in the Torah with all that baggage and try to see other people who didn't spend any time with their kids. Oh, Abraham. Abraham's willing to sacrifice Isaac. I bet it's because he didn't spend enough time playing basketball with them, just like me. So it's another way of using your own baggage right. and imposing it on the text. But there is another way to do it. The other way to do it is a scientist where I say, no, I leave my baggage at the door. Mm -hmm. It's not about me. It's about what is the Torah really trying to say. Mm. Let me enter its world. Look at this. I never expected to find a whole set of parallels in Shirashirim to the Joseph story. And it's not just the Joseph story. Echacha, right? Two, two verses with the, right, the, the, the word Echacha appears four times in the entire Hebrew Bible, twice in this verse. The only other two times it appears is uh, actually also in the same verse, tucked away in the ninth chapter of the book of Esther. Now, is that a coincidence? Only two times, right? I mean, it's two and two. These are the only times it ever appears. Clearly, Esther is evoking Shira Shiram. So you can't read that verse in Esther without understanding that its author is talking about Shira Shiram. So what is Esther saying right. about Shira Shiram? Now, you can ignore that, but, but you've got to sort of open yourself up to that and say, I don't know. I, I never expected to find that. Uh, forget Lashonhara. Like, what's the Bible actually teaching me? Right. And then, and if you look at it in that way, uh, something I think remarkable emerges, which is if you're willing to leave your baggage at the door, if you're willing to come to the Bible without preconceived notions of what you want it to teach and let it teach you things, it will teach you remarkable, mind-blowing things that you never will have expected to learn. And that's, uh, I think, fascinating. Well, you talk about sort of superimposing your own agenda onto how you read the Bible and the text itself. How do we deal with this issue of the fact that there are many occurrences in the Bible where there is a plain meaning of the text, and yet the oral uh, interpretation, the rabbinic interpretation that we've had, um, is sort of, is different to what the plain meaning of the text is. For example, an eye for an eye. There are some people who would argue that actually it was meant literally, and then it, the, the rabbis changed it, and or they, the, you say there's, or some people say no, it was always this way. It was always to do with monetary matters, not literally. There are other people who talk about the fact that the rabbi, Rabbi Sachs, speaks in his book not in God's name about how the rabbis uh, wrote in the Talmud that the we we don't uh, want to learn from the way in which the Jews conquered the land of Israel. We're going to shift, have a sort of paradigm shift in that regard and some people would say that was a shift of ethics and shift of reading the text some people would say no actually it was always understood this way it was just and they try so so how do we make sense of the fact that there does seem to be a difference in terms of interpretation between the plain meaning and the way the the rabbinic uh, authorities have 
uh, understood it? And do you believe that actually things have changed and evolved in interpretation, or actually it's always it's always the oral tradition has always been the same in the way we've interpreted the the, the meaning of the text? Well, first of all, the Torah is dynamic. Even the oral tradition is dynamic. There is no static oral tradition. The oral tradition is full of debate and and develops over time. So I don't know if if it, if it is helpful to talk about um, if it was always a certain way. But what I will say is that I think that the well, like the, an eye for an eye. Right. It? I think the oral Torah and the written Torah are trying to do two different things and the larger truth emerges from some sort of mysterious mix of both of them. The approach that I take is kind of one that was pioneered a little bit, or at least articulated, I think, well by in Hebrew by uh, Rabbi Yehuda Cooperman of Blessed Memory, the, the, the uh, rabbi who's the founder of Michlala. He wrote a book called Pshuto Shemikra, which is sort of devoted towards really the question you've asked, which is how does the pshat, the simple meaning of the text, live in a world of oral law. We have a video on Aleph Beta which kind of articulates an approach to that, or which really is Rabbi Cooperman's approach, although I regret sort of not having mentioned him in that video. So we'll use this as the opportunity <laughs> to give him credit uh, for the thought. Those who want to look up the video on Aleph Beta, you can find it at alephbeta.org in our second year of Parsha videos and Parsha. Okay, we'll put a link. You can put a link. <laughs> you can put a link in, into it. Uh, but essentially, the argument that I made there is that. Um, one finds a consistent thing uh, when you look at uh, the sort of Talmudic legal analysis of the Torah and you look at the language of the Torah itself, um, which is that the Torah will often articulate things in terms of a broader ideal without paying that much attention in the written law as to the actual expression of the ideal. Um, I mean, to give you, I can give you examples all night about this. Uh, uh, one might look at Parshat Shoftim, for example, uh, in Sefer Dvarim, as a political constitution for the Jewish people. In a way, it is a constitution. It talks about different kinds of leaders. It talks about the Kohen, the priest. It talks about the Navi. It talks about the prophet. It talks about the, the king. And, um, and it gives um, rules for each of these. Uh, these are the rules for the Kohanim of what they can take from the people and what they can't. These are the rules for the king. Um, these are the rules of whether a, a, a Navi, a prophet, is a false prophet or a false prophet. And to some extent you could argue, yes, that's a, that's a constitution of the people, but it's not. Because the one thing that the Bible does not articulate expressly is the nature of the relationship between these institutions. How do they check and balance each other? How do they actually live together? Mm. If you actually look carefully, you'll find that there's a book in the Bible in which these three different types of leaders emerge as possible paradigms. And it's almost as if Jewish history is playing out in reality mm. the various different possibilities of the interpretation of Parshat Shoftim, and history is going to be the judge of which emerges. Mm. And so the book I'm, the Bible I'm talking about is Sefer Shmuel, the book of Samuel. If you look at the book of Samuel, and the book of Samuel opens, what's the dominant form of leadership? It's Ailey. Well, what kind of leader is Ailey? Right? Ailey is a Kohen. Um, and, and Ailey wants his children to take over. And there's the possibility that the kahuna will be the dominant, that the priesthood will be the dominant paradigm, is the dominant paradigm, and if his children take over, will continue to be the dominant paradigm, but his children can't take over because they're corrupt, and a new type of leadership emerges, but not just a new leader, but a different kind of leader. It's Samuel, and the Samuel is a prophet, 
right? And for a while, there's a chance that that will become the dominant paradigm. Samuel is the guy in charge. He'd very much like it for his sons to take over, but his sons are corrupt, and that doesn't work out, right? Enter a new kind of leadership, a king. Now, what's the common denominator in all these kinds of leaders? They're the ones that were talked about in Sefer Shoftim. It's almost as if history is working out the paradigm. How are these things going to relate? How is this new king, Saul, going to relate to the prophet in his life, and, and how does that play out? And the Talmud pays attention to some of that, and is and is is sort of dynamically interpreting that and is 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 responding to how history develops and is attempting to encode that uh, you know for future generations um, so there there's a fascinating and mysterious kind of interplay between uh, the the uh, the biblical world and the rabbinic world Cooperman's argument in um, in Shemikra is basically that at its core the Bible is seeking to do a different thing than the Talmud is doing. The Talmud is a particular kind of interpretation of the Bible. Remember, the Bible's the core. Everything else is interpretation. There's many different ways of interpreting the Bible. Talmudic halachic interpretation is one kind of drash, but not the only kind of drash. I mentioned to you all before that there's agadic drash, which is moral exposition, which is different than legal exposition. Mm. It's the same way that if you have a profession, right, different professions will look upon life differently, mm. right? So if you decide to be a lawyer, you have a certain view of life, Go right? For, for you, everything is, 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 you know, what are your rights? What are your responsibilities? And that's how I come and I look at things. If I'm a psychologist, then it's, well, you know, what are you feeling? What was your past like? What's your relationship like? What are your relationships like with this? What are your relationships like with that? If I'm a sociologist, right, how did your society sort of... Um, uh, influence the way that Ali Anasfeld sees the world. We ask different questions of things based upon where our interest comes from. The Talmud is just one kind of way. It's just one perspective of interpreting the Talmud. It never claims to be more than that. It's the legal perspective. So you have to ask yourself, you have to ask yourself well, there's a role for legal legality in the world. Mm. Legality is important. But it's not the be and all and end all. And it goes back mm -hmm. to a point that I made to you before, which is that to some extent, one of the things which I think we have, one of the difficulties we have in Orthodox Judaism is that we have sort of, um, to some extent, overemphasized the Talmud to the uh, right, it's, it's very, very important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not the only way to interpret biblical text. Mm. There's uh, Jewish tradition admits of many others. There's mystical interpretation of text. There is remez, right? There's the there, there's a, a quasi-mystical interpretation of text. There's moral interpretation of text. There's simple interpretation of text, and the text lives in all of these different kinds of interpretations. Why? I think the answer is because life is rich. And in order to live a rich life, you have to have some sort of law that animates your life. So the legal part of things, right, the law and order, that's part of what it means to live. So the Talmud has to come and articulate and say, what does this mean in the legal sphere? Mm. But to say that the legal sphere is the be-all and end-all in, mm. in interpreting the text simply isn't true. Mm. 
there is a larger meaning of the text, a moral meaning of the text, a relationship meaning. If I'm a psychologist, what is the text telling me in terms of relationships? So if I have lo al chalevi mo, so the halachic interpretation of do not boil a kid in its mother's milk may be I don't eat cheeseburgers, and may be that I can't, don't cook meat and milk together, together, but that doesn't exhaust the meaning of the text. A moral interpretation or a relationship interpretation asks us to understand what sort of relationship do we have with food such that when we are eating, we should be thinking about milk and we should be thinking about meat such that when I'm eating them, would I, would I really want to eat them, right? Would I boil a kid in a mother's milk? It's almost as if the Torah is saying, you know, you can eat milk and you can eat meat, but where does milk come from? Mm. It doesn't come from the store, right? Where does meat come from? It doesn't come from the store, right? Meat is an animal and I have the ability to kill an animal and to bring it to my table, and that's a right that God gave me in the world, but I'm still killing an animal. There's death in the world, whether I was at the slaughterhouse or not, and what is milk? Milk is the animal's way of giving life mm. to its child, and I'm allowed to drink that too, and I can use that, and I can harness that from the animal world, but I have to understand what I'm doing. I have to have some modicum of respect for the meat and some modicum of respect for the milk, and that respect demands that you wouldn't boil the meat you wouldn't boil a, a kid, you wouldn't kill a child, right, by boiling it in milk. If the milk is there to allow the child to live, right, what kind of insensitivity to this, to this mother's milk, to, 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 to maternity in the, in, the, in the animal world are you expressing by killing the animal by doing that? And that is a non-halachic argument. There's nothing halachic about that argument, right. but it's an overriding principle that the language of the text is giving you there. So I, I, I don't see it as sort of a linear dichotomy between these things as if they're in tension with each other, which wins the biblical text or the, or the oral law. The biblical text is foundational. The oral law is one... Mm. one way of interpreting it, and there are many other ways as well. Right. Some people argue that the reason why there is so much focus on studying the Talmud is because that's how you really understand, understand the mind of God. That's an argument that is made a lot. How do you understand the legal framework of Torah? And that helps you actually understand uh, God and spirituality. Perhaps they're saying perhaps more so than a study of the written Torah. Do you not accept that? I'm not sure if I would accept that. I think that the, if you go back to the sources that actually make that argument of the Jewish tradition, one of them is the Nefesh HaChaim, Rav Chaim Um But he's not talking, as far as I understand, uh, about the Talmud. He's talking about the Torah as itself. Right. The reason why the Torah as a whole is valuable is because it is a way of understanding or connecting with the mind of God. And if you think about that, that's an awesome kind of thing. Even if you go to the secular world, right? The uh, the uh, one of the most remarkable thing that scientists uh, find uh, just absolutely stupefying is that uh, they argue that mathematics is the mind of God, right? And and what's remarkable is that the mathematics that govern the universe are complicated but not too complicated that the human mind can't access. Mm. And they said that, you know, and I'm not enough of a mathematician to know that, but to, to them that's one of the greatest mysteries of the world, which is that you can imagine a universe where the math is too complicated for the human mind, short of computers to ever be able to figure out. But it's not that way. It's just tantalizingly challenging enough that if Newton and Leibniz come around and figure out uh, calculus, all of a sudden it begins to make sense. Mm. And all of a sudden you can plot an orbit to the moon. And all of a sudden you can understand how, how orbits work and how and the science behind Kepler's 
uh, and Galileo's understandings of things. And it's almost as if God is teasing us and <laughs> saying, you know, I, you know, use your mind because your mind can connect with my mind. Mm. Mathematics is one of the ways it happens. The natural world in general is another way it happens as we under, begin to understand the secrets of biology. And we begin to understand the secrets of chemistry. Um, I once had a chat with a doctor as a medical school. I said, did he ever just stop and just be awed at just the, the function of a cell. You're looking at cells under electron microscopes where every atom is the size of a tennis ball and, and, and the whole thing is the size of New York City and the, the manufacturing capacity of the cell dwarfs that of the eastern seaboard of the United States and that's one cell. Does that over, overwhelm you? And it's like, yeah, you know, you never really think of it that way yeah. in medical school, but it's, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's the truth. And so God put forward... Um, you know, one of the ways, one of the ways we connect to God, not the only way, is through our intellect and by being able to um, play hide-and-go-seek with him in terms of these, these little clues and these little pieces in the world that he's put out for us, chemistry, biology, all of these disciplines, and one of them is Torah, mm. right? He's given us this law, and, um, and it's a way to connect with him. It's not the oral law. It's not the written law. It's it, it's it's the Torah in all of its shapes and the forms, sum of its parts. In, in, in all of the sum of its parts. And if you think about the Shema, really, we were talking a little bit off camera about the Shema. But if you think about the Shema, the the fundamental imperative of the first paragraph of the Shema is a love of God, and then the implications of love and of God. And if you just think about what the Shema actually says, just listen to the the basic words of the text: You shall love God. How? With all of your heart, with all of your soul. It should be a passionate love. What does a passionate love look like? These things that I command you today, right? How should you relate to them? Now, before I even translate the end of that verse, if I would just start a verse by saying, these things that I command you today, and you are my subject, how should you relate to them? What would be the logical answer? But in commanding you to do things, your job is to listen, to listen and to obey. But listen to the actual end of the verse. These things that I command you today should be should be on your heart. You should have an emotional relationship to them. Fascinating. I'm not just asking obedience from you. I'm asking for something else. You should actually care about what it is that I'm commanding you. you. It should matter to you. Emotionally, it should matter to you. Not just intellectually, but you should care. Why? Because if you love God, then one of the things he gave you, who is God? God is this mysterious being. You can't touch him. You can't feel him. You can't see him. How do you reach out? He's the ultimate extraterrestrial, right? And if you think about all the movies that talk about extraterrestrials, right? There's the scary movies that talk about extraterrestrials, right? The, the ones written by directors who, who grew up on vengeful gods. They, so the vengeful extraterrestrial, the Terminator who comes to the world. And then there's the Steven Spielberg movies with E.T. with the warm and fuzzy uh, extraterrestrials, right? But one of the challenges with all extraterrestrial movies is like, but how do I understand this being? They don't speak English. They, they, they don't come from my world. How could I even interact? My senses, if you think about what a sense is, all of our senses are adapted for interacting with terrestrial phenomena, right? I see things. I see physical things. I can touch them. I can feel them. I can, I can taste them. They're not adapted for extraterrestrial contact, for, for beings that don't live within space and time. So how am I supposed to relate to God? So God says, you know what? 
One of the ways we can relate is I put stuff in this world. You can figure me out a little bit, right? My mind is in this world. It's there with chemistry. It's there with biology. And it's there in the Torah, a kind of moral, right? This, this is my diary. I, I'm writing this down. This is how you come to understand me. This is how you can begin to, to enter into my mind, plumb its depths. And it's a remarkable book. And you discover it's a book like no other book. And, it, and, it, and it's marvelous. And if you do that, then you may find yourself commanded by it. And yes, you will obey. But you'd fall in love with that book if you loved someone mm. and they and you had a hard time understanding them, but you were compelled to love them nevertheless, and they were your creator and you you wanted to know them and then they died and they they were off in heaven and you couldn't reach out to them and touch them and they weren't in space and time anymore, but they left you a book, right? And they said, Read this, this is me. How would you feel about that book? So the book might say, I want you to do certain things, and that's all very nice, I'll do them but I have an emotional connection to that book. That book matters to me. And if that book matters to me, then I'm going to teach it to my kids. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it wherever I am. I'm going to talk about it at home. I'm going to talk about it on the way. I'm going to talk about it in the morning when I wake up. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to make you nauseous talking about the book. It's going to be the first thing when I wake up. It's going to be the last thing when I go to bed. I'm going to be obsessed. I'm just that. That's the kind of passionate connection mm. to the Torah, which the Bible, is, which 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 God is is trying to sort of cultivate within us. You asked before about the oral law and the written law and the dichotomy between them. It's, if you think about what I've just talked to you about, that's the, the written law. That's how the written law sees Shema. But interestingly, it's not the way the oral law sees Shema. The oral law will take that and then, from a particular legal standpoint, is going to take a legal slice out of that and analyze that. And it's going to seem to take all of the magic out of it mm. and all of the romance out of it. And here's what the rabbis are going to say. They're going to say, when it says that you should speak words of Torah in the morning when you first wake up and in the evening when you go to sleep, you know what that means from a legal perspective? It means that you should say Kriyat Shema, you should say these actual words of Shema, you should say them in the morning, there's a mitzvah of Kriyat Shema, you should say that them. That definitely takes the magic right? out of it. Takes, and you should say <laughs> them at some time when you wake up and at some time right before you go to sleep and now there's a debate, what does that really mean? How late at night? How early in the morning? How long in the morning? Is the first three hours? What does it mean to get up? And, and all of a sudden there's all these rules and it doesn't feel so spiritual anymore and I do that. But you know what? There is a place for law. What does law do? You see, if all you have is this overriding principle of passionate love, here's the thing with passionate love. It's very difficult to stay passionate love all the time. You fall in love with your wife. You're in the state of the throes of passion for how long? Okay, so you, you know, when you're dating. Okay, when you're engaged, first year of marriage. But how long does that intense passion last? Mm -hmm. Right? Real love somehow tends toward the mundane at a certain point. And then there's the question, what does love look like in mundane life when I'm driving carpool? What does love look like? Yeah. Right? When I, and, and at some point, the answer is that we've got to find some sort of consistent way of at least spending 15 minutes with each other, 10 minutes with each other, the way we connect in the morning, the way we connect before we go to bed, right? The, 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 if I can look you in the eye, and, and if we have rules, and that, you know, Tuesday night we're going to be talking for what, it, and those rules help us order our daily lives and give some kind of expression to overriding moral priorities. And again, this is sort of the, the oral law 
and the written law at work balancing each other. Um, so uh, there is a, a mysterious kind of balance between the written and oral law, where what the written law is doing is it's articulating an ideal, right? An ideal that is almost like a mission statement about how you live your life. But any good, um, you know, company knows that the secret is uh, is not just the mission statement, but how do you translate the mission statement into the daily life of the company? Mm -hmm. How do you translate the mission statement to the daily life of people? And to some extent, that's where law comes in. Mm. Law comes in and says, here's how I can touch that ideal, right? Here's how I can bring a piece of that ideal into my, if I say the Shema, if I say some representative word of Torah, and I at least make sure that no matter how busy my day is, at some point within three hours of waking up, I, I, I'm going to articulate a, a paragraph of Torah, then I have some way of touching that ideal of being the kind of person who's so deliriously in love in Torah that when I wake up, it's the first thing on, on my lips. Is it the whole kid and caboodle? No, but I'm on the treadmill. I'm on the way there. I'm getting there. It's an ideal that I'm striving for in my life. So I think those who say that halacha, that law is the be-all and end-all of what it takes to be a moral human being are sorely mistaken. But halacha is the beginning of it. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the way the rabbis gave us a structure to mm. begin to inculcate these ideals. But you got to look at what the ideals are. Mm. And if you don't, then you run into what the Ramban, Nachmanides, calls the very real possibility of being a Manuval Bershut Torah, which is I can keep all the laws, but I can be a disgusting human being. Because if I'm not at least looking to inculcate into myself the ideals that these laws are trying to give me practice in, then I could just miss the whole boat. Yeah. I definitely agree with you on the point about consistency in Torah. That's how you build relationships with other people. That's how you build relationship with God. And you have to keep, you know, doing the acts and keep giving even when the magic fades away or isn't fully there. Um, but it seems very idealistic to say that you should be able to, you know, you speak about the importance of why we should uh, make time to speak uh, three times a day, or you, uh, you, that was your parallel to communicating with husband and wife. Um, but it's sort of it's definitely nice to say that we should do it, think about it in those terms. Um, but it's not always easy to motivate oneself to do these things from like a position of like it's sort of described as ahava from love. And the rabbis speak a lot about the importance of doing things out of bayira, fear or awe, whatever. Um, that definitely would you agree, is a much uh, more powerful motivating factor to get people to be consistent in their uh, mitzvah observance. But then the question is, if that's the sort of the most powerful driving force, does that end up creating room for love? So there, you have to be careful with what you mean with love's opposite or love's polar um, uh, reflection, which is yira. Right. The question is, what does Yura mean? We have a number of videos in Aleph Beta that explore this too. In particular, uh, if any of you folks want to jump on over to alephbeta.org and look at our second year Vayikra video. You're plugging video. your stuff too much. I, I know, can't take I know. This. Our second year Vayikra <laughs> video, but you don't have to put this in. But you can, uh, our second year Vayikra video is really an exploration of 
the sacrifices, the offerings in light of Avon Yira. That's a certainly a very interesting exploration of that. But I, I would say that the, the there are two poles over here. What do we mean by fear? Traditionally, there's two types of fear, right? And the Ramam talks about this. Uh, the Ramam will talk about Yirat HaOnesh and Yirat HaRomamut, right? Fear of punishment and and awe of the majesty of God. The Ramam considers one of them um, sort of the uh, what Freud would call uh, the opiate of the masses, right? Fear of punishment, the Ramam considers the opiate of the masses. He and Freud would get along here, right? Which is to say that, yes, you can keep the masses in line with good old garden variety fear, fear of hell, fear of burning for your sins and all sorts of things. And there's no question that that counts as some kind of motivator for a lot of people. Um, but not for everybody. If I ask you honestly, um, and I think it's really a, a cultural difference, I know that there are some people who are truly motivated by fear and fear of, of retribution in the next world. I have to tell you, it's never really done it for me, uh, personally. I've never found myself terribly, uh, and maybe it's my upbringing, I, I don't know, and maybe I I, I count myself as, as somehow spiritually immature that I'm not that motivated by that. It reminds me of a, uh, a teacher of mine at Nair Israel who I will remain nameless because of the, uh, uh, I, I don't know if he'd want this publicly attributed to him, uh, but he said to me, only somewhat in jest, he said, you know, his wife is a very orthodox, uh, very God-fearing person. So there is a statement by the rabbis of the Medrash that say that, um, those uh, that if you are uh, punctilious about eating the third meal on the Sabbath, shalashudas, so then your nitzel midina shal gehinam, you're saved from the fires of hell. So he turns to me and he says, you know, I eat shalashudas because I'm hungry. My wife, she eats shalashudas for the hell of it. <laughs> <laughs> and what he was really getting at was, you know, there's sort of two ways of seeing that, you know. You can be the God-fearing person who, who really is scared by that, mm. or you can be him that, that that can kind of, with a smile, sort of joke about that. So then the question is, well, what does motivate you? Mm. If you're not motivated by fear of hell, so then what are you doing? Adhering to religious strictures, just go do your own thing, right? There, there's all sorts of other possibilities. And that's where you start getting to two other motivations. One motivation is love. But there is another motivation. The other motivation is Yira, but a different kind of motivation. The other kind of motivation is awe, which is sort of the, the polar opposite of love. And you think about what awe is, um, awe is a very different kind of energy of love. Even nowadays, if you think about awe, sounds like a very lofty religious concept, but uh, even the word awesome, right? When people say awesome, what do they really mean? They talk about, I'm so in awe of that rock star. What, what does it mean to be in awe of someone? To be in awe of someone is to, to be in awe of anything is to feel yourself very small in the presence of something completely overwhelming. Um, and that's a very, very powerful religious emotion. Not easily felt, but, you know, just uh, lie up on a grassy knoll and look up at the stars, look at the Grand Canyon, and you can begin to get a sense of, of some of the majesty out there and uh, a, a sense of awe in, in, in actually being in the presence of the creator of all is 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 kind of remarkable. Um, Would I that remember, engender responsibility, a sense of responsibility to do something? So I think it that? does. I mean, but but let's talk about what that engenders. If I really feel awe, like we don't feel it that often, 
right? But let's just say, like, what does it make you feel like if you feel like if I told you now, um, Ollie, this is C.S. Lewis's example. I'll just give you C.S. Lewis's example. If I just told you, Ollie, right now, right behind that door right there are four untamed lionesses and they're very hungry, right? How would you feel? Quite concerned. You'd feel quite concerned. You'd be fearful in the, in the garden variety sense of the fear. But what if I told you, Ollie, behind that door are spirits of, of, of your ancestors mm. and they're watching you, they're listening to everything you say and in a moment they're going to float through the door and you're going to have an encounter with these spirits and you believed me and you thought that that was really true, mm. right? What would you feel then? Very overwhelmed with excitement and a sense, I guess, a, a sense of anxiety, perhaps. I yes, know. you would be anxious, mm. right? It, uh, it, at a, there would be part of you would be excited because it's not a bad kind of thing. It's a, it's an exciting opportunity, but part of you would be anxious. This is otherworldly. I've never experienced anything like mm. that. And what does anxiety do to you? If you feel anxiety, what, where, where does that take you? Now you feel what? vulnerable, you feel on edge. You feel vulnerable and on edge, and how's that likely to affect you? And therefore, there's a couple possibilities. One possibility is that rather than engage in the experience if I feel too anxious, what might you do? You could freeze, you could run, right? That's the energy of awe, mm. right? Will I engage? Right? Because if I do engage, what then might happen? What if I have this overwhelming experience? What's your real fear? Perhaps you'll mess up. Yes. Maybe I'm too small and insignificant. Maybe these spirits of, of generations past will understand how small and insignificant I really am and seeing my real self hmm. and my my, maybe I'll just evaporate. Maybe, maybe who am I? I'm one little piece in a long chain of, of people going back 3,000 years. Mm. And what if, my, what if I'm, I'm diminished by that experience? There is a shrinking away in fear, a kind of shriveling up, in a, and, and, and it's a different energy than love. If I feel in love with someone, what do I want to do? Right? If I, if I, if you, the more you feel in love, the more you want to what? You want to engage, mm. you want to embrace, you want to become one with, mm. right? The more I feel in awe, the more I shrink back, the more I, I'm worried, I don't want to put myself out there. I, I curl into myself. But interestingly, as I allow an awesome experience to overtake me, I might, if I do it the right way, surrender to that experience. Mm. And if I surrender feeling small, then fascinating, there is a kind of union between me and the awesome thing, right? But it's a different kind of union of love. And, and to just finish out the thought, when you unify in love, it's a unity between equals, right? It's I'm an equal, I'm an I, and you're an I. And in love, we can embrace and we can attain a kind of we, but the eyes are still there. When you unify in awe, the I is just destroyed. Mm. It's like I evaporate. Mm. I'm so small and I evaporate into this larger thing and become one with something which is overwhelmingly greater than me. These two things are naturally in tension with each other, but they are the, the yin and the yang of, of our relationship with God. There's a sense in which we love him. There's a sense in which we're in awe of him. Um, is there any place for fear of punishment though? And Sure, I there, think is it's, there a place for that? Fair enough. The same way that there's a fear of punishment in society. I mean, we, if you want to take it down to a very simple level, in society there's the same thing. The president, 
right? You're about to meet the president. Now let's imagine that as a president you can actually respect and love, right? And we'll <laughs> leave current politics aside, right? And a, a, a president that you admire, a president that you thought the best of. So there's a part of you that might say, I love this guy. Mm. I, I, I'm so happy to be able to meet him. Mm. And there's a love and you want to embrace him. But then you stop yourself and say, Ollie, that's the president. Mm. He's not an equal to you. You can't mm. just like walk over and give him a kiss and a hug. He's mm. not your friend, right? So you'd say, okay, but I have a sense of awe. And that's a sort of more mature way of seeing it. We and, do, and but the, we do believe that unlike the president, God does have unbounding love for his creation. But that's true. So, there is, so and, and we might say that also. We might say the president, right, loves all of the, all of the humanity. And so, yes, there is an aspect of love, right? Mm. But it, it balances itself with an aspect of, of fear and of awe. And it also balances itself with an aspect of fear of punishment, right? If I, uh, right, I'm not going to walk in with, uh, with, uh, I'm not going to walk in and do something disrespectful in the right. White House. Why? Right. One is because I'm afraid the Capitol Police will kick me out. But above and beyond that, I wouldn't want to do it's that. Embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's <laughs> embarrassing. It would violate my sense of awe. Mm. It would violate my sense of love. So all of them can happen at once. Right. right. There is a need for law and order. And law and order is law and order only if there's consequences. So right. yes, consequences are necessary in the world to have an ordered society. And mm. that's true with God, too. If God is king, if he's the president, there's going to be law and order. Right. But it's not the be, and all, be all and end all of the religious experience. Mm. That's a fantastic analogy, I think. One uh, conception that people have, especially in the Christian world and the atheist movement, is that, and I suspect many people in religious Jewish circles as well, is that the God of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible, is a vengeful, punishing God. I mean, you look in uh, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, the way he describes uh, the God of the Bible being the worst of all, the most punishing. When you look at the floods and the way he treats the people of Saddam and the way that he talks about punishing and being very um, vengeful. Um, and, the, and Christians say that's what, you know, that's what the New Testament's about. It's about replacing that. And now we have a God of love. Um, it's quite easy to understand how this conception developed um, because you just start reading the text. But why is it a misconception? Why is this not the way that we should be reading the text of the Bible? Mm -hmm. So it's a good question and uh, probably a larger issue than we have time to fully develop here. But let me give you an example. Um, so first of all, I'll, I'll say this, that uh, I can't pretend to have all the answers uh, for everything. So I, I'll give you my personal way of looking at this. And, and I'll also tell you that, to me, one of the things that a person does, I believe sort of in a, a mature approach to the Bible, is part of coming to the Bible without preconceptions is also coming to the Bible with a healthy sense of awe. And a healthy sense of awe means I don't understand it now. I don't understand it all now. And I don't have an expectation to understand it all in a year from now or in five years from now. But the text is it, the, the text is a text that I can fall in love with and the text is a text that I can be in awe of in reflection of the God that's behind it. So uh, I would lie to you if I don't tell you I have questions 
that bother me about the Bible, that over time, right, I begin to understand, oh, that's what's going on, that's what's going on. So I'll share with you a personal uh, example. One of the great examples of a vengeful God in the Bible is the Akedah, right? God comes and tells Abraham to take his child to the top of a mountain, then kill him. Just kidding, right? <laughs> so what's that about? Jokes! Right? It's like try telling that to your nine-year-old kid as a bedtime story. It doesn't work so well, right? <laughs> Mommy, are, you know, are you going to, like, what is this about? Uh, yeah. Are you going to take me to the top of the mountain and kill me too? And he's what, commended for it. And he's commended. He's commended for it. And it, it's it's a naughty problem. And generations of philosophers have struggled with it. And um, and Kant has struggled with it. And Kierkegaard has struggled with it. And and, um, it, it, and you know. And how do we sort of deal with it? So I think that if you look at it from the Bible's perspective, if you if you follow the biblical the clues, the language clues, you began to you begin to get some sense of what's going on. First of all, it's clear from the Bible that Abraham is to be commended and not condemned for what he's done, right? The angel comes out and says, not Abraham, you fool, what were you doing? But lo you didn't withhold your son, the son that you love from me. Strange, Good job. Right? Good job. Yeah. Right? Like, what's that about? But if you listen carefully to that language, lo you didn't withhold your son from me, almost as if, and the analogy I give is a, is a and, and this is, I'm giving you an analogy for sort of a way that you look at something that seems like a vengeful God, but there's another way to see it. Think about when the Akeda happens. It's not any old person. It's not just anybody. It's Abraham who is asked to do this with reference to Isaac. Why wasn't it Jacob with reference to Joseph? Why wasn't it Moses with reference to Gershom? Why wasn't it Devorah with reference to her kids? Why isn't it you and I? Why was it specifically Abraham with reference to Isaac? It's a good question. Who is Isaac in the larger scheme of things? The second, the three second generation. The second generation. The first child of a forefather. Of the Jewish people, yeah. Of the Jewish people. So what's that about? Second, look at that language. You didn't withhold your child from me. I can't even believe you did that. You didn't even withhold your child from me. The language is almost, and I'm going to borrow the language of a custody battle. Imagine you would have a battle between two parents who got divorced, right? And there would be a temptation, and they have some sort of custody agreement, right? But, you know, the father has some kind of birthday and wants his kid to be there, but it's really the mother's night, right? And he says, you know what? No, it's mommy's night, and I'm giving it a mommy tonight. I'd love to have you here, but it's really her night. And you can ask the mommy, say, I can't believe you let go of the son, the son that you love. You didn't even withhold this child from me, this child that you love. I'm really impressed that you did that in a sort of amicable divorce kind of scenario. Mm. I wonder if there's not a custody battle going on here. If custody battle is actually a very good analogy for what's going on. If you think about it, there really is one. Imagine a custody battle between a husband and wife who get divorced over a child. It's a terrible thing. Imagine a court has to decide the battle. You never want to decide between a mother and a father as to who should get the child. Mm. They're both parents of the, of, the, of the child. Who should get the child? So what is the court? on what basis does the court make its decision? So you might say, well, the court decides on the basis of more competent who would be parent. the more competent parent, but you would argue, well, in a world of din, in a world of absolute justice, what is the most fundamental principle of justice that you possibly could use to decide a custody battle? 
So you might say, well, it's what's better for the child. Yes, that's true, but not in the world of justice. In the world of justice, it's who does the child belong to? Who has the stronger claim on the child? Now, if I had to ask you, male or female, mother or father, if you knew nothing else about this, who would you just, and you had to decide, you can only give the child to one, who would you say has the stronger claim on the child? I think I'd say the female. Why? Because the child lived inside the female right. <laughs> for nine months. The, the father's contribution to the child is fleeting. The mother's contribution to the child is ongoing. She was literally the home for the child. Her body formed the child. The, the, all the enzymes are by. We can't make an artificial womb. There's no way to do it. Even afterwards, she nurses the child. Just biologically, she's the fundamental parent, right? Yeah, more so than maybe. And I think that's one of the reasons why society after society after society will tend to favor the female in custody battles with males. Women tend to win those battles. There's a reason for it, right? Okay, now imagine a three-way custody battle. The Rambam says, Maimonides says, that there are actually three partners in the creation of a child. There's God, there's the mother, and there's the father. Now let me ask you, if there was ever a three-way custody battle, because usually there's not, usually God is like, no, you have the kid. Fine, I'm giving him to you. Mother, father, enjoy the kid. But what if God would ever assert his rights? What if God would ever say, no, uh, actually, I would like him now? He's mine. Could you please return him to heaven? I would like the child. And what, imagine a court that would actually have to sit in justice and then decide, okay, who's the fundamental parent around here, right? If you were the judge, who would you award the child to? Who is the most parent of all? Obviously God. Why? God is the, he's constantly breathing life force into the child. Sure, and even from a scientific perspective, you'd say to the mother, Oh, so you're the you're the fundamental parent. Okay, so I get it. You have a womb. You figured out the biochemistry there. Like you made your womb. You you know how it all right. works. You were gifted a womb. You were just the vehicle. That's right. all you were. You were a vehicle for the child. Right. The one who made it all work. The magic behind it all is God. Without God, it all crumbles. Right. God is the fundamental father of all of humanity. And if God would ever say, "I want the child back," He's got the right. So, it's but which putting the child through pain. Like slaughtering Isaac. Yes and no, maybe, right? But right, give him back. So the way you go back to the next world is you got to die. So yes, so it's scary. But I want him back. So it's always scary, right? When 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 the mother, the kid's having a good time with the mother. You have to go to father. The kid's going to cry and say, no, I want to stay with mommy. But it's time to go to father, right? So it, it's just, it's a regular custody right. battle, right? right? Now, now you have to ask, well, why? Why would God ever assert his rights? Only to say, no, no kidding, right? But, mm -hmm. I, but I, it's almost as if God's saying, I want it on the record that, that we all agreed that I was the fundamental parent around here. That's what the Akedah was about. It's the beginning of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And what God is saying is, what is this nation really about, right? You're having a child. Whose child is that? Whose nation is this? Mm. This is a nation unlike every other nation. This isn't a nation where Alexander the Great comes along and decides he's conquering all the land and everyone is Alexandrians from then on, right? This is a nation that's devoted to an ideal, to propagating God's values in the world. And therefore, to some extent, God is actually seeing himself as father of the nation. And therefore, it's not a coincidence that it's Isaac. It's the first child mm. of this nation. It's God saying, just putting it out there. Who's the real father around here? 
right? I take possession of this nation. It's mine. It's there to do what I want to be done in the world. And that's what you're doing when you join the nation of Israel or you're a participant in the nation of Israel. Mm. So here's a way of seeing something that at face value just looks like the vengeful God. But if you follow the clues, sometimes vengefulness masks a deeper kind of, uh, of mystery. So uh, it's one example, but I think in, in, in other cases, yeah. that obtains as well. Oh, that was incredible. <laughs> this is just a nugget for all the kind of stuff you can get on Alafita. Um, so it's very, very important for if people kind of want to hear more of this kind of stuff that they should uh, go to your website. This is a question which you can kind of take in any direction you want to. Okay. Um, your whole approach to focusing on written Torah is to find within it key themes and patterns that can teach us values for how we guide our own lives. Right. Um, the Jewish people are in a very interesting situation today. We're back, have our own state. Um, in Israel, um, there's also interesting kind of conflicts going on internally in the Jewish people between secular religious, between the even within religious sects themselves, um, diaspora versus Israel, um, dealing with conflicts that are external to us, um, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, there's all kinds of um, other issues we're grappling with today, um, individualism, sec secularism. Um, what would you say are, and you can kind of take this in any direction you want to, you can pick on any one of those topics, but what would you say are some of the key principles that we can learn from the actions of our forefathers in the Torah that can sort of be used as like a, a guiding, navigating force for how we as a Jewish people can move forward today and deal with the, the situation we find ourselves in today? So there's a great video uh, that we produced in Alafeta that I would probably highlight for this. I'll try to synopsize uh, its lesson. Um, it's probably our most popular series. It's uh, a, a kind of an insight into Rachel uh, and what makes Rachel tick. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, uh, I think we called it About Rachel Tears. Tears. Yeah, yeah, I haven't actually seen that one. Oh, you should take a look. It's really nice. Okay. Um, and it's really, you know, because when you try to figure out biblical figures and get a sense of what they were like, it seems so inaccessible. Like, what was Rachel like? You know, Jacob falls in love with her and, and is smitten by her, but what is what makes her tick and who was she? And can we have a sense today of what she was really like? So this video is an attempt to try to really, you know, flesh out her personality. Who who was this woman? And um, we look at some of the the very difficult and painful stories of the rivalry between Rachel and Leah over the births of children, which is just, when you read the story, it almost feels like you're, you're voyeuristic, like you're, you're looking at a fight between sisters that you really shouldn't be looking at, and it's, it's, it's a private episode that you're intruding on. Um, but we, we look at it through the lens of a verse in Jeremiah and a, a, an argument about how Jeremiah seems to be interpreting the personality of Rachel. Um, without getting into the, the, the details, um, there is a point in the story, seemingly, where uh, Rachel is most aggrieved. Um, and her decision at that moment, the prophet Jeremiah seems to be her finest hour, the, the moment that Rachel just distinguishes herself in a way that is breathtaking. Um, the way you see it in Jeremiah 
is uh, when Jeremiah portrays a weeping Rachel who's crying in heaven over the loss of her children going into exile, and she's beseech and she is beseeching God for compassion, and um, and God responds and says these words: "Yesh sachar libulatech." There will be reward for what it is that you've done. And the question is, what is it that she's done? I mean, now she's just crying. What, what, what it, the tears are, are doing things? What has she done? And again, without getting into the details, but there's very strong evidence that when Jeremiah uses that particular phrase, yesh sachar lipulatech, he is intentionally creating a double entendre with the words yesh sachar. Yesh sachar in Hebrew is spelled yud shin shin chaf resh. There's a person spelled Yud Shin Shin Chafresh. His name is Yisachar. That person was the fifth child born to Leah when Rachel still had no child. Right? It's one of the most painful moments in Rachel's life. Rachel is beset by this searing pain that she can't have children, and her sister, who she led into the marriage and, and who seems to have duped her, is. is has child after child after child, and then this fifth child, and she says no children, she's angry and she's upset. And, and yet there's this moment of heroism, and the moment of heroism is the night that Yusachar is conceived. And what happens there is Rachel undergoes this, this change where she's seeing things from her perspective, and all of a sudden, in a moment, she stops and says, but how does Leah see this? It's the moment when Leah, um, when Rachel has made seemingly an innocuous, well-meaning request. She seems to have come to the conclusion that she may never have a child, that she's infertile, that it's just never going to happen. And Leah comes home one day to find her seven-year-old oldest child, Reuben, picking dandelions in the fields and giving his mother a bouquet of dandelions. And Rachel, consumed with the vision of, of this child who's finally giving something back to his mother, in the sense that she may never have that. Mm. And there's this moment of truth that how do I want to live with that? What kind of person do I want to be? Do I want to be the kind of person that always lives in jealousy? That at every bar mitzvah, at every wedding of Leah's children, am I just going to be consumed by, by jealousy and anger that it's not me? Or is there another path? And what am I going to do about that? And she goes to Leah and she says, Do you think you could please give me some of those dandelions? And it's just dandelions. I mean, who cares about dandelions? But the dandelions mean so much more. It's the first gift of a child to his mm -hmm. mother. And what she's saying is, if you could see your way to giving me a couple of these dandelions that I could put in a paper cup by my windowsill, then maybe I could feel like I could share in the motherhood of this nation and I could take joy in, in the gifts of your children like mm. you and we could both be mothers. Could, do you think you could do that? Do you think you could give me a couple of those dandelions? And Leah's response is shocking. And Leah's response is, Hama'at it was it wasn't enough that you took my husband from me, that you also want to take my dandelions of my child. <laughs> and it's like if you're Rachel at that moment, like what do you do? I mean, think about it. Leah's saying it wasn't enough that you took my husband. I mean, let's just go back to the history. If you just look at what happened, Rachel was always the one that was supposed to marry Jacob. Mm. Right? Not Leah. 
And here comes Leah, you took my husband? I mean, that's revisionist history. Isn't it the other way around? I mean, if you're Rachel, you hear these words, you feel like scratching Leah's eyes out. But that wasn't Leah's response. Leah's response was that in a second, in that moment, she sees Leah and she understands what she's going through. And she says, oh my goodness, I just, I never even saw it your way. Mm. And what she Cross sees is always in that greener. moment, she, she just, she all of a sudden takes Leia's point of view. And it's like, how could you have said that? What reality are you living with that you could possibly have let those words come out of my, your mouth mm. that you took my husband? And then it dawns on her. One second from Leia's perspective, that's actually how she sees it. And then uh, the classical commentators sort of articulate Leia's point of view that Rachel just seems to be understanding. And it's, and it's this... Um, point of view was one second it's like Leia didn't really have a choice did she I mean it was, it was her father Laban who put her up to that it's like you know if your father comes to you in the middle of a wedding feast and says Leia go put on a white dress you're up you don't get to say no to Lavan you, you you didn't have a choice there and 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 Leia's response really is you know I didn't have a choice I had to 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 you know, to put on that white dress and engage in that act of subterfuge. But once that night happened, once I was married to him, I was married to him. You had a choice to whether to marry him also after that. Why did you choose that? Everyone knows he loved you more than me, right? What were you doing coming into my marriage once it happened and then trying to take him away? You're taking away my husband from me. And then at that moment, Rachel sees, you know, I've been so focused on my lack of children and how I've been the victim of not having children. I well, Leah has all these children. Yes, Leah's had all these children, but she's been missing something too. Mm. And it's not children, it's companionship, the companionship of a husband. Mm. And if she's missing that, then how could I really ask to share in her motherhood without me giving her something and, and without me responding to where she's at? And then she says, you know what? I give him to you tonight. I give you the gift of companionship with him. And then and and maybe that's how we can put this behind us. And she lets him lets her into the marriage in a way that she'd never been in the marriage before. Mm. And that's the moment, that's the night that Yisachar is conceived. That's the moment that Yeshachar Lipulatech, that's the moment that reward comes to Rachel for generations. That when God says, you know, you had in your mind little Yisachar, this little child that you led into this relationship of Leah. You see him as the child of a rival, baby, but it's this child that you let Leah have. She was supposed to be with you. He was supposed to be with you that night. He was with her in that moment that Yisachar was conceived. The reward for that is that if you allowed your rival sister to have this child playing on her lap, that in your worst fears you feel like she kidnapped a child that should have been mine. Mm. Well, there'll be a time when you'll actually have kidnapped children. Not one, but hundreds of thousands of them. And it won't be a rival sister who kidnaps them. It will be a rival king, a king of Assyria who takes them away in hundreds of thousands. But there's reward for Yisachar. There's reward for what you've done. And your children will all come home. Mm. They'll come home, right, ultimately in the exile uh, is 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 over um, as a result of what it is that you've done. So uh, the long and the short of it is is that I think Rachel's heroism is a is a remarkable touchstone. Um, it's the ability of someone to say my perspective is one perspective, but it's not the only perspective. 
if you exist in this world, you have a perspective too. It goes back to what we were talking about before, about different perspectives on life. There's a legal perspective, there's a moral perspective, there's a sociological perspective. There's different ways to interpret Torah. And part of it is having humility to understand that, yeah, I'm looking at the legal perspective right now, but that's not the be all and end all. There's other perspectives as well. And that's part of what it means to be human. I think part of the, what it means to be human is on the one hand, we're created in the image of God. On the other hand, we're not God. And the way in which we're not God is that we do not have the ultimate perspective on reality. We only have one perspective on reality. Uh, I'll kind of end with my, with my sort of monopoly analogy. But if you look at a monopoly board and, uh, you know, there's, there's the creator of the board, which is Parker, right? Mr. Parker from Parker Brothers. Yeah. And then there's the <coughs> participants in the game. Little hat and little shoe going around the board. So Little Hat and Little Shoe can have all sorts of questions. Imagine a conversation between Little Hat and Little Shoes. Little Hat says, so do you believe in Parker? Right? And Little Shoe goes, what are you talking about? He says, well, right there. It says on the side of the board, made by Parker Brothers. So do you believe in Parker? So Little Shoe says, well, I don't know. What do you mean? So he says, well, look, you know, I've been here a long time. I've gone around the board every week. I pass go and collect 200. I've seen Tennessee Avenue. I've seen jail. I've seen pre-parking. I've seen it all. I ain't never seen Parker. Don't know where Parker is. I'm a Parker atheist. I don't believe in Parker. What would Little Hat say? You know, Little Hat would say, you know, you're looking for Parker in all the wrong places, right? Parker doesn't live on the board, right? Parker is the maker of the board. You wouldn't mm. expect the maker of the board to live in our world. Part of what it means to not be God, to be a human, is to understand the limitations of what it means to be human. It means that God doesn't live in your board. God lives somewhere else. It means there's a fundamental difference between the maker of the board and you. Isn't that what Torah is meant to give us, though? That objective clarity? Torah is meant to give us an insight into, uh, in, in many ways, I think, Torah is meant to give us a reality check. Without Torah, without any way of holding on to Parker, Part, right, they're the rule. Torah is the rules. Let's talk about Torah as the rules. Mm. The rules of monopoly are the rules, right? But what if Little Hat got to make the rules? Why would it be a bad game if Little Hat got to make up the rules? Because it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't, right? right. It's like Little Hat says, no, when I roll a six and a five, that's really a double six. And I get all the money in free parking because that's what I decided the rules should be. We have our interests. We are, and our interests are fine. Everybody can have their interests. We should have interests. We all have a horse in the race. We, we are players in the game of life. But players in the game of life don't make up the rules. Part of what it means to be a player in the game of life is to realize I am just little hat and you are little shoe and you have your perspective and you think it should be this way and I think it should be that way. And that's fine. And that's what it means to be a player in life. I think one of the great lessons of the Torah is to understand that Humanity means, our humanity means having a particular perspective. And it's okay to have a particular perspective, but you have to realize there's another one. If you're Rachel, you have to realize that as much as you're convinced that the history of your marriage with Yaakov is the way you see it, there's another way to see that history. And it's Leah's way to see the history. And if you are the Israelis, that's one way to see the history. But there is a way to see the history if you see yourself as a child of Ishmael and not as a child of Isaac, right? And it's not prima facie invalid. It's another way of seeing the history, right? So you can lie and you can, you can, you can come in with bad faith. And that's one, you can be a terrorist or you can blow everything up and I can condemn that. But there is a kind of no, 
like there was a family feud here. What happened with Ishmael? There is a way of seeing like what happened with Ishmael, right? And it's like, and, and that's an issue. And the Bible says those are issues. Those are issues that play out in history. Family feuds don't go away. And we have to understand that it's not just one perspective. Um, and if we're, and if, and if, if I'm, uh, if I'm an American Jew and I have to understand that people in Britain see it differently and, 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 and Falashas see it differently. And, 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 and so I think... But if their perspective isn't justified, for example, you know, the perspective of Nazi Germany, if it's unjustifiable, is the benefit of trying to understand their side just so you can... So that's what I said. There's bad... Right? There, you can be wrong. Right. Right? So there, it, it's certainly true that one can be wrong. Right? But there are times when one can't... Where... Um, where there is a larger truth that is the merger of more than one perspective. Uh, and I think uh, part of being a careful human being in the world is to know the difference between the times when we're wrong, or the times when I think you're wrong, and when the times I think that, uh, that there's a larger truth that I can approach with real curiosity. Um, and I think uh, a, a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, some of the conflicts that we have are conflicts between true good and evil, and some of the conflicts we have are conflicts where I'm convinced that the good is on my side, but that itself is evil. And the real trick in humanity is the be is the wisdom to know the difference between those two. Mm. Difficult to know the difference. Difficult to know the difference. Okay. Right, Foreman, thank you so much for joining us. I'm thank sorry you for so keeping much, you here Ollie. so late in your offices, but um, very grateful. This was fantastic. Thanks for coming out. You got quite an operation here. Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can find more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manus Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, and many more, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Ollie Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.